seems like one of the things Americans enjoy is we enjoy the British monarchy. Kings and queens, right? So uh, I got a picture of, of Queen Elizabeth I up here. Queen Elizabeth was from the 1500s, and uh, she uh, really had this idea of, of you dress for success. You've heard that saying, you dress for success or you dress to impress. In fact, when Queen Elizabeth was queen uh, a long time ago, uh, when she would go into the royal court, she would dress very lavishly with colored thread, which was a rarity at the time and really expensive. Uh, she had diamonds and rubies and pearls and sapphires and all those things all throughout her dress and the way that she uh, dressed. And as she would do this, as she'd go into the court, she would also require all the other ladies who would come into the court, they could only wear black and white. That way, she would be the one that everybody would be drawing their attention to. She would be the one. All eyes were on her. And I know some of you are saying, okay, that's cool. I really have no concern with British royalty. Like, that's just not my thing. Maybe for you, maybe you're more into sports. And so I've got a picture of, of Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods is known in a golf tournament to wear red on Sundays. Do you know why he wears red on Sundays? Because red portrays this bold. It portrays confidence. And so all eyes are on him as he's trying to win the golf tournament. You see him in the red shirt, and uh, uh, it does something to people around. Actually, there's actually some psychology behind this idea. Research suggests that the color of your shirt, it... it uh, elicits a specific response. This is research. There's science that backs this up. So, for example, if you wear a warm color, like red, uh, then people think you're active and exciting. And if you wear uh, a cooler color, like a blue, uh, then people will view you as being more passive or calming. I'm not sure what black and white uh, is supposed to mean, but, but that's kind of the idea. And so if you are a person that desires attention, uh, then you ought to wear red. If you're somebody who wants to be viewed as being dependable and trustworthy, you might wear blue because the color of your shirt has a psychological, psychological impact on those around you. I bring these two things up because our culture, it kind of fuels this idea of attention-seeking, does it not? I mean, we have this culture around us where we are constantly bombarded with this idea that we need to promote ourselves. We need to position ourselves. We need to sell ourselves to other people. We want people to notice us. And so at times, we do things to draw attention to ourselves. You probably see this most through social media. What is social media for? It's to present yourself so other people will say, man, they're cool. I want to engage with that. Which is why when we post to social media, we've got to get the right filter and the right picture, and everybody has to be smiling. We don't put the bad picture up. You put the good picture because we are trying to present ourselves in a certain way. I know there are some of you saying, well, not me. Like, I don't crave attention. I don't desire attention. I don't want all eyes on me. And that might be true. You may not crave attention, but if we're going to be honest, we still want to be recognized for what we do. We want to be noticed. We, want to go, we don't want to go into a situation and, have, and just feel like we're lost in the background and nobody notices us. In fact, that's where even if we don't crave the attention, we do take notice when somebody else does. We take notice when all the attention is on someone else. This morning, we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Corinthians 
chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're continuing this study that we started here a couple of weeks or months ago. Uh, here at Restoration Church, that's one of the things we kind of do. We kind of pick a book of the Bible and kind of plow right through it. We want to look at the whole counsel of God. So really thankful for this book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, this book at its core is telling us to, to center our lives around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, that is the foundation for everything we do and everything we believe and how we live our life. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to a church uh, much like ours in the city of Corinth, uh, Paul is saying when you build your life around the gospel, it affects everything. It affects uh, the disagreements and the divisions that we have within the church. The gospel affects how we view marriage and how we live in our family. Uh, this past week, uh, this past couple of weeks, we've had a challenging uh, couple of chapters on how uh, the gospel affects our Christian freedom, our Christian rights, versus how we sacrifice our rights and our freedoms for other people because they're more important than our rights. And I'll mention, uh, I'm excited for this summer. Uh, this summer, our church is going to be doing uh, Somewhere in the Psalms. So you've got the, the, the book of the Bible in the middle of your Bible that Oftentimes, we're kind of like, we go to for hope or, or joy. And I'm excited this summer to, to look at a number of the Psalms. In fact, I would encourage you this summer, we put in our, uh, our newsletter this week some recommended resources. As we are engaging with the Psalms this summer as a church, we'd love for you to engage with the Psalms individually. So there's a couple of uh, devotional books that we'd love for you to pick up and, and read, either personally or uh, with your family or as a couple or with another friend. Um, let's engage with the Psalms and see what the Lord would do as we study uh, this fantastic book. But our text today, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is going to address um, some issues within the church in relation to worship, in relation to a church service, and to what we do as we gather as the body of Christ. Because there were some in the church at Corinth, and what they were doing is, is they were drawing attention away from God onto themselves partly in how they dressed, but, but they had this idea that attention was being drawn away from God onto individual people. Paul's going to address that. Additionally, there are some other parts of their service that the Corinthians were allowing to further bring disunity and division amongst the church. As Paul is trying to say, no, don't pursue division, pursue unity. And so Paul is really going to, in this passage, address order in the church, structure in the church, how we worship in a way that glorifies God, not ourselves, in a way that promotes unity amongst the body of Christ and not division. So here's where Paul's going to start out for us this morning, verse 2. Paul says, I commend you, I, I, I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. See, this section of, uh, of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul is answering some questions that the church had. The church had some questions about how do we do some different things, and so Paul is beginning to answer those questions. And he starts out and he says, listen, I want to commend you for this. Because this little passage we're going to cover right now, you're doing well in. You're grasping it. But I'm also going to further explain why we do things the way that we do. Now, I'll be honest, as we look at these next couple of verses, these are maybe some of the most difficult passages throughout the New Testament. Uh, difficult, sometimes controversial. Uh, and one of the things that we need to understand, especially as we're reading this book, is 
we are reading specific issues within a specific church, within a specific culture. And so some of those things, we're going to look and say, well, this doesn't make sense to us in our day and age because we are 2,000 years ahead. We're, we're in a different culture than they were in. And so what we want to do is as we look at these, these verses that can be difficult, is we want to understand the principles that are being taught and apply them to our situation, which is what Paul did 2,000 years ago. He says, I'm going to give you a principle and I want you to apply it into your church, into your context and that's what we're going to try to do today. So here's the verse, verse 3. Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now that verse is one of those controversial verses. Because oftentimes we read that verse, and we're quick to think, well, that verse is denigrating women. That verse is suppressing women to say men are greater than women. Men have superiority. Women are not equal. You see that in the verse? Listen, Paul is not talking about superiority. Paul's not talking about the value of men and women. He's not talking about the essence of who men and women are. In fact, one of the things that's true in the gospel, uh, in the New Testament, and specifically here in 1 Corinthians 11, is, is Paul is going to make very clear the equality of men and women. That they're equal, that God made them equally in his image. In fact, here's what it says in verse 5. He says, uh, every wife prays and prophecies. This is an idea that, that women are involved in ministry. They're involved in the church. They're not silent. They're not, they're not beat down. They're involved in the ministry. They assume there's that assumption. Verse 11, it goes further to argue that men and women are equal in God. Is what it says in verse 11. And the Lord... A woman is not independent of a man, nor is a man of a woman. Verse 12, as a woman, uh, uh, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman, and all things are from God. See, in the culture in Corinth, a woman would have, would have been normally viewed as being less than. That was typically the, the, the way that women were viewed in their culture. And you see what Paul's doing here is he's speaking value to these women. He's, this would have been outrageous in their society. He's saying, no, listen, men and women, men and women, they're all created equal in the image of God. There's value to being a both men and women. They're totally equal. They're bound up to one another. They are inseparable and interdependent. Then what is Paul saying here? In verse 3, Paul is trying to give us a picture of what it looks like for us to be made in the image of God. See, when we say that we're made in the image of God, we have to understand that God is a Trinitarian God. Do you understand what we mean when we say that? It means we've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There, there's one God in three separate beings, and there's still one in essence, right? That's kind of what the Trinitarian God, that's what we're talking about in that regard. So all three parts of the Godhead, they are equal. Yet what we see in Scripture is Jesus willingly submits himself to the Father. He, he willingly submits himself to the Father so they can fulfill different functions and so they can uh, display the love of God to the world. You see this especially in the book of John. The book of John, it says, uh, Jesus says, I have not come to do my will, but to do the will of my Father. He is submitting his will to do the will of the Father. 
He says, uh, he says further in, in John chapter 12, he says, I don't speak the words I want to speak, but rather I speak the words of him who sent me. Again, you see him submitting the words he speaks to the Father. He wants to do the Father's will. Then in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, not my will be done, but God, your will be done. Jesus is willingly submitting himself to God. The issue, the issue is not value. They're, they're both God. God the Father, God the Son, they're both God. They're equal in value. So the issue is not value. The issue is headship. It's authority. It's responsibility. You see this uh, very clearly in, in the book of Genesis where God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember who ate, who ate the fruit first? Anybody remember that story? Who ate the fr- Oh, Eve ate the fruit first, right? And then she gave it to Adam and because he's a dumb guy, what does he do? He eats it, right? When God comes to confront them, who does God talk to? Who does he confront? He says, Adam, Adam, what is this you have done? Not because Adam is of of greater value than Eve, but because he has a responsibility. He's the head. He has a responsibility. He has the authority. And so God speaks to him and says, listen, I'm going to address you because uh, this isn't a value issue. This is a headship and authority, a responsibility issue. Adam, you have primary responsibility for your spouse. This is what's happened. You guys have both sinned. I'm holding you responsible. And this is what Paul is trying to say. Everyone, every one of us, male and female, we have a head. We have an authority. We have somebody that we are supposed to willingly submit to. And in that context, this is what Paul says in verse 4. Every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, to understand this, we have to understand again the context because we're looking at the church at Corinth, which is 2,000 years ago in a different culture than we are in. And so in Corinth, you remember the story, Augustus was the emperor. He was the supreme being, the president, the ruler, the king, whatever it happened to be. And when he built uh, the empire of Rome, he would go around Rome and he'd build statues of himself. Of course, isn't that what every leader wants to do? Build statues. Look, everybody, look how great I am. And as he would build statues of himself, he would, he would um, have a toga over his head. He'd have a head covering over his head. In essence, to show all the people, I'm in charge. I'm the man. I'm, re- I'm responsible And so he would put this head covering on, and you can see these statues, you can Google them, they're still there, and they've got this toga on his head as a way to tell everybody, listen, I'm in charge, I'm the boss, I'm the man. And what happens, this happens back in his day as well as in our day, what the influencers do, the people follow, right? And so as Augustus started having these head coverings, the men and the church were thinking, you know what? I want to do that too. I'm going to wear a head covering to communicate, look how great I am. Look how powerful I am. Look how how special I am. Look at my status. And so these men were coming into the church with these head coverings, essentially trying to get position and status. Everybody, look how great I am. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, when you come into the church and when you wear this head covering to draw attention to yourself, Paul's saying you are dishonoring Christ. 
You're dishonoring the one that you are supposed to submit to. You're dishonoring the one that is supposed to all, what it's supposed to be all about. And so Paul says in verse 4, every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered dishonors your head because you're trying to take the attention off of God onto yourself. Now look at verse 5. He speaks to the women. Every wife who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Again, let's just look at this culturally. A little different scenario for the women. The women in, in, in Corinth, they would mark their availability, their singleness, based on these head coverings. So it would be similar to like a wedding ring. You know, where a woman wears a wedding ring, that signal, signifies, hey, I, I'm taken. I've got a spouse. And so what happened in their church is when you wore a head covering, that was saying, hey, I'm reserved. I have a spouse. I have someone else. And so these ladies were coming into church, and they're like, we're free. We're going to take our head coverings off. And all of a sudden, it was like all the single ladies, all the single ladies, all the people are like, what's going on? What's going on here? And it was dishonoring to their spouse. It was drawing attention onto, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm available or something. I just went Beyonce in this sermon. There we go. What Paul says is, is, ladies, when you come into the church without your head covering on, you're drawing attention to yourself, which is dishonoring to your head. It's taking the attention off of God onto yourself. In fact, Paul summarizes this in verse 7. He says, a man not ought to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God and the woman is the glory of man. See, what Paul is saying here, this is nothing new. He points back to uh, the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, uh, God looked and said, it's not good for man to be alone. He looked at Adam and said, there's not a helper that is, is fit for him. And so what does God do? He, he, he puts Adam to sleep. He takes a rib out of Adam and he creates Eve. And now you've got this man and this woman, and Adam says, this is the bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. See, the idea that Paul is trying to, to say in this passage, and this is where I want us to be clear, is not talking about, about women's rights, and, and he's speaking value to that, but what he's saying is everybody has someone to submit to. Every one of us has someone that we submit to. And so what Paul is saying is do not conduct yourself in a way that would dishonor the one you're supposed to submit to. Because that would draw the attention onto you and to that instead of being onto God, which is what we're supposed to have our attention onto. So he's saying, men, listen, don't dishonor God by drawing attention to yourself. Ladies, do not dishonor your husband by drawing attention to yourself. The attention is supposed to be on God. Our, our goal in worship is to glorify God, not ourselves. He says something similar in verse 14. A little different, but similar. He says, Does not nature teach you that if a man wears his hair long, is a disgrace to him? And a woman who wears her hair long, isn't that her glory? Now, can men have long hair? Yes. I would have long hair if I could. But there's this thing that happens where you start losing your hair the older you get, and it just doesn't work for me anymore. I've tried. In the Bible, you have Nazarite vows. This is an issue uh, uh, of whether or not men and women can have long hair. But in that day, as well as in ours, men and women typically dressed a little bit differently. You could typically tell the difference. There's a masculine and a feminine. 
And so since both are equally valuable and necessary, what Paul is saying is, listen, don't, don't uh, draw attention off the worship of God by trying to be something you're not. Don't draw attention to yourself by being what God did not create you to be. You be what God created, male and female, you be that. And don't draw attention to yourself so that way the attention is on God. And so we worship and glorify God alone. Well, that's the first issue. The first issue in the church when it comes to worship is, listen, don't take, your, don't take the attention off of God and onto yourself. We come together not to, to promote ourselves and to make ourselves greater. We come together to worship and glorify God. Here's the second issue in the church. And this is going to be a strong word. Verse 17, Paul says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but actually for worse. What he's saying is when you come together to worship, what you're doing actually is stunting your faith. It's not making you go closer to God. It's actually making your faith grow weaker. And the question is, well, what's the issue? What are they dealing with? What's the problem? Verse 18, Paul says, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe that in part because the factions among you even prove who the genuine believers are. What are the divisions? Again, we've already talked about there being divisions in the church at Corinth. People were arguing over who's greater than one another and, and trying to laud ourselves and look how great I am and I'm better than you. And Paul says there's still some of those factions, some of that division within the church. Where does that come from? Verse 20. When you come together, it's not actually the Lord's Supper that you are actually partaking of. The Lord's Supper simply represents communion. Communion, if we understand Christian history, communion is something that was instituted on the night that Jesus was betrayed. It is one of the, the two essential ordinances or ceremonies or practices for churches to uh, be uh, involved and to participate in. Communion specifically was designed to remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That is what we have in communion. And not only does communion remind us of the sacrifice of, of Jesus on the cross, we saw last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul said that when we partake of communion, that unites us with God as well as it unites us with one another. So as we partake of communion, us as a people of God, we become united in a special way where we are a part of the people of God. We belong to one another. We support one another. We, we encourage one another. The, 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 the communion, it reminds us of the gospel of Christ, how we all come to Christ in the same way. None of us come to Christ and say, well, I'm so much better because I'm more righteous. No, we come to Christ because we're sinful and we need grace and forgiveness the ground at the foot of the cross is level and we all come to the cross on level ground so how are they getting communion wrong here's the answer verse 21 he says in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal one goes hungry while another gets drunk what do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of god and humiliate those who have nothing what shall i say to you shall i commend you in this no, I'm not going to do that. See, the context in Corinthians is uh, they would meet in a, in a home. That's what the church would do. Rather than meeting in a big, beautiful building like we're in today, the church would meet in homes. And typically in a home, you have a dining room that would seat, you know, 10, 12, 15 people, something like that. 
And then there was like an outer courtyard, an outer courtyard uh, where maybe you could have more people. Maybe you consider like, like the kids' table. You know, you've got the, the dining room for the adults, and then you've got the kids' table outside where all the kids and all the, the less important people would eat. And so what was happening is the wealthy members of the church, they would arrive to the house early, and, and they'd prepare this fancy meal, and they'd take the nicest seats around the dining area, and then they would, uh, the food would come out, and they would enjoy the best of the food, the freshest, the hottest. And they would have the, the drink provided by the hosts. And those that got there early, they would indulge themselves. They would enjoy as much as they could eat, as much as they could drink. They would enjoy themselves. And then the rest of the people showed up. And, and rather than giving them the seats in the dining room, they sent them out to the kids' table outside. And they had whatever what was left. And they were cut off from the wealthy members. They were cut off from uh, whatever little food or drink what was left. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how that would have been a little bit humiliating? I mean, have you ever, you ever been invited to somebody's house? And they're like, hey, yeah, we're going to have a barbecue. You're welcome to come over and, and, and hang out with us. And you get there and you're like, yeah, you didn't mean to invite me, did you? Because there's not enough food for me. Like, I feel awkward. Like, I'm just this third wheel. I mean, that would have been, that's what it would have been like where you have these people who are wealthier, who got there early, they're enjoying the nicest stuff, and then you're at the kids' table outside, and you're like, there's nothing left for me. This is kind of awkward. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm kind of humiliated. That was kind of the scenario of what was happening. And so here, Paul is saying, listen, this, this meal, this communion meal, this Lord's Supper, is supposed to remind us about the love of Jesus. It's supposed to promote the unity and the oneness and how we belong to one another. How we're all equally loved and accepted by God. But in practice, communion became a way for the church to flaunt their social status. Say, look how great I am. Look, I have one of the nice seats. This is where I belong. And Paul says, listen, what you're doing it can't even be constituted as a Lord's Supper. It's not communion anymore. It's simply a way for you to promote yourself and trying to make yourself greater than you really are. Paul says it's, it's bad. It's bad. It's not what it's about. And so Paul says, let me, let me tell you what communion is about. Let me tell you the purposes for why we do communion. Number one, communion is to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. In fact, Paul is going to Verse 24 and 25, he's going to point back to the words that Jesus shared actually on the night before he was betrayed. Or the night that he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified. Paul quotes in verse 24. He says, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When you take the bread or the wafer and you eat it, this represents my body that has been broken for you on the cross. Do this in remembrance of me. That's a pretty great sacrifice, right? Verse 26, in the same way, Jesus took the cup, and he said, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood. And I say, as often as you drink of it, do this in remembrance of me. He takes the juice, he takes the cup, and he passes the juice around and says, this represents my blood that I spilled for you on the cross. When you do this, remember the sacrifice I made for you. In verse 26, as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's saying, listen, remember the incredible sacrifice. When we partake of communion and we have those elements of the bread and the drink, it should point us back to what Christ went through on our behalf. 
where he gave his life for us. He gave his life so we could be redeemed, so we could be forgiven, so we could be given new life. This is what it represents. When, when, when Jesus defeated Satan and sin and death and hell so that everybody who would come to him could experience grace. And so Paul says, listen, when you, when you observe communion in the Lord's Supper, you need to remember the sacrifice because it is intentional. It is there for you to remember what Christ has done for you. But there's a second reason why Paul says we observe the Lord's Supper, we observe communion. And that is a challenge for us to examine our hearts. What he says in verse 27, whoever partakes in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and the blood of Jesus. So verse 28, 28, let each person examine themselves and then eat. See, communion is this opportunity for us to evaluate, to evaluate our heart, to evaluate our life. Are we loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? You examine yourself, do I have any ongoing sin in my life? Am I genuinely repentant before God? Am I seeking his grace? Am I seeking to love him above all else? Before you partake of communion, Paul's saying you ought to examine yourself. Are you loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And secondly, you ought to examine yourself. Not only are you loving God, but are you loving your neighbor as yourself? And this is a challenge for us. This is a challenge that Paul's just talked about. Are we consumed with our rights? With our freedoms? Are we consumed with with me and worshiping me and my privileges and my hunger and my attention? Or are we actually doing what Scripture calls us to do, which is, which is to love our neighbor as ourself? Paul says, before you partake of communion, examine yourself. Are you loving your neighbor like that? Are you pursuing the good of other people, even those that are different than you? Or are you consumed with your rights and your freedoms? Paul was saying, if we would do that, if we would partake of communion to remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us and to take an opportunity to examine our hearts, if we would do that, communion becomes one of the most humble and beautiful and edifying things that we could ever participate in. That there would be growth and maturity and unity found in us partaking of communion and it would be a beautiful thing. And Paul would say, if we don't do that, if we don't partake of communion in the right spirit, in the right way, we will face judgment for our actions that misrepresent the God who offers grace and love freely to all who believe. In fact, to summarize this whole passage, to summarize what is this passage trying to say, as far as the church is concerned, as we gather together for worship, Paul is saying that worship is designed to glorify God not ourselves. Worship is designed to glorify God and strengthen the unity of the church. That is why we gather together for worship. Not to glorify a pastor, not to glorify anybody on stage, not to glorify a building. It's to glorify God and God alone and to strengthen the unity we have amongst one another. In fact, I was thinking about this. thinking about Disney World. How many of you guys ever been to Disney World? had an opportunity when I was young to go to Disney World. It's a fascinating place. 
What I learned is Walt Disney, he created Disneyland first, and he created Disneyland. And while he's in Disneyland, he looks and he sees, he sees a cowboy walking through um, on the way to Frontierland. That's like the western region. He sees a cowboy walking through Tomorrowland, which is like space and future. And Walt Disney looks and he's like, that seems out of place. Why is one of my employees dressed like a cowboy walking through space? That doesn't work. And so when he was designing Disney World, designing Magic Kingdom, he created 392,000 feet of tunnels that go underneath Disneyland. So when you're at Disney World, so when you're walking through Magic Kingdom, uh, there are tunnels going underneath you. So that way, so that way, uh, it would allow employees to move around the park without any distraction. Because again, what, 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 what Walt Disney wanted to create, he wanted to create a place of magic, of wonder. And he didn't want to have any distractions. So he had all these tunnels underneath to, to, to move the distractions so that way nothing would detract from what he was trying to accomplish. Now the church, we're not trying to, to pursue and create magic and wonder and entertainment. But as a church, what we are trying to do, what we are trying to pursue, is we're trying to portray the love of God, the love of Jesus through the gospel message. That is what we are called to do. And as a people of God, just like Walt Disney, we've got to, to, to refuse Refuse to allow anything to distract the church from being and doing what God has called us to do. We can't allow these distractions to, to get us off mission of what we're called to do, which is to, to proclaim the love of God to the world. Our worship is not designed to glorify ourselves. It's designed to glorify God and to strengthen one another through the power of the gospel, through our unity. So here's our application for today. What do you do with this passage? Simply, I'm going to ask you to do what Paul has already instructed us to do. I'm going to ask you simply to examine yourself. Take an opportunity this morning, just between you and the Lord, and really examine your heart. In fact, examine your heart in this way. Considering the fact that we are all under authority, that we all have someone that we are supposed to willingly submit to, Examine yourself. Are you living in a way that honors the authority in your life? Are you living in a way that honors the authority that God has put in your life? You know what that means? Men, I'll start with you. Men, are you leading and loving your, your, your wife? Are you leading and loving your family? Are you leading and loving the church in the way that honors Jesus? And I'm not talking about leading and loving in a way that says you're the king and you're the dictator and everybody does what you says. No, the example of Jesus is that he served us. He served the church. He gave his life as a sacrifice. He gave willingly for the church. Men, are you leading and loving your family like that? Are you leading and loving the church like that? Are you leading in a way that honors your head? Wives, are you living in a way that honors your husband in the same way that Christ honored God the Father? Children, are you living in a way that honors your parents? 
See, every one of us, we have someone that we have that, that's head over us, that we should be willingly submitting to. Are we willingly submitting to them? Are we living in a way that honors them? See, honor and submission, it's not a sign of weakness. I don't know who told us that. Somebody said, well, if you, if you submit, if you honor someone else, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. It's a sign of incredible faith. We're no longer, no, when I honor the Lord, when, when, I, when I submit to him, no longer do I have to promote myself. No longer do I have to say, hey, I want your attention on me. Now I can say, it's not about me, it's about him. I want all eyes on him, not on myself. That is what we do when we honor and submit to those that are over us. Examine yourself, number one. Are you living in a way that honors the authority in your life? Number two, examine yourself. Are you living in a way that pursues the unity amongst the church? Now, let's just be honest. There's a lot of things in this world that divide us, right? There's a lot of things in this world that says, hey, we're different. Our economic status, rich, middle-class, poor, you've got all of them. Our, our, our educational background, our politics, our ethnicity, how we feel about masks and a pandemic and a vaccine. We're divided over what football teams we like because clearly there's one better team than all the others. That's the Seahawks. We're divided over cats and dogs. We're divided over all these things, all these things that make us different in this world. Listen, which is more significant to you? Identifying with those things that divide us or identifying with a thing that unites us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as a people of God, that is our core identity. Not the football team, not the politics, not our economic status, not our ethnicity. The core thing about us is our faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what unites us together. And as we have an opportunity to partake of communion, as we think about the elements this morning, the bread and the juice, they're not an opportunity for us to further claim our identity and all these other things. They're an opportunity for us to submit to the gospel and to say, hey, I'm uniting with these people not because of any of these other things, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is greater than all those other things. Listen, it is by grace that we are saved through faith. Scripture says that God is not a respecter of men. He doesn't value us based on the ways that we value one another. We come to Christ in the same way, humbly in need of grace and love and forgiveness. Look at all these different ways that the world says would divide us. Listen, Christ went to incredible lengths so that we would no longer be divided. So we would no longer be identified by those things. But so that we, he went through incredible lengths so we no longer have to be enemies with one another. He went through incredible lengths of dying on the cross so that we could be united as brothers and sisters in Christ. So that we could be dependent on one another. So we could honor one another so we could sacrifice and serve one another, so we could surrender our rights towards one another, so we could stand and have unity in the gospel. 
Because then the world's looking and saying, man, what is it with those Christians? All these things that divide us, look at those Christians, they like each other. They have this thing that draws them together that is stronger than their politics and their football teams and their pandemics and all those other things. Listen, this is Paul's application for us today. Would you examine your heart? Would you confess before the Lord where you are not honoring the authority in your life? Would you confess before the Lord where you are not pursuing the unity of the church? You know what that means today? It means you might, you might need to find someone in this room and make an apology towards. I'm sorry that I've allowed this thing to become between us. It's not worth it. You might have to make some things right. But I tell you what, church, is incredibly worth it. Listen, it is a privilege and honor to lead and love this church. The privilege to worship with you here at Restoration Church where we have the opportunity to glorify God, not ourselves. We get to gather together to glorify God and pursue the unity we have with one another. Let's pray.